The title today is called 10 Crucial Days. 10 Crucial Days. Have you ever thought about your life in segments of certain amounts of time? Well, I did 94 pages of research that I typed up myself on these 10 crucial days. So my point here is not to give you a detailed account of what happened because honestly, when I looked at my 94 pages, I realized it would take me two months to teach it, 10 lessons, and I won't do that to you. So I'm going to have to skip the stuff about the Marines, about Washington's enemies, slaves and masters who fought beside each other, boats, spies, and not give you all the details I'd love to give you. But instead, I think that you should study this part for yourself, and I will give you what I find that's valuable for the time we're living in today. We're living in a time that there are moments in history that can't be regained. There are moments that require something from us. And so this was a short time in our United States history, which literally had a world effect upon it. So in these 10 crucial days, I'm going to refer to some of the most iconic and important moments of the American Revolution. And it was this one 10-day section that lasted from December 25th, 1776 to January the 3rd, 1777. And moments like this can completely turn the tide, can turn the tide of the war. And it's like that in history, but it's also like that in your own life. There are times that you can seize upon that literally will turn things around for you. And I want you to look at what was going on in Washington's life, in his emotions, the facts around him, and ask yourself, would you have known to have acted upon it? Would you have had the will? Would you have had the endurance? You know, endurance is one of those things that Jesus said, if you endure, you'll make it. If you hold to the perseverance of the word. This was something that I felt like would really help us, that we could see what could be done in 10 days when it looks hopeless, literally hopeless. Like a time in your life where everything completely looks hopeless, raw. There's just a bunch of rebellious, headstrong, primitive fighters, and they're going to be put down where they belong and done and over with. It's just a matter of how much time it's going to take. So what began was the failures the failures of the cause for freedom. Like there were failures that took place. You would think if you had a great cause that there's not going to be failures. If there's a cause for freedom, then literally there shouldn't be anything like this taking place. But by December of 1776, it didn't even seem like there were failures. It just seemed like they were on their last leg. Like it was even beyond that. And then their commander asked them to work Christmas Day. <laughs> I think, of all things, can you imagine that is the request that he made for him, was to work Christmas. Now, I was thinking about modern in this season, and, you know, I'd ask kids, I said, what would you do for Christmas? What did you do over Christmas break? And literally, I had this conversation, but they were talking about their anxiety and their depression, and it's trendy to be on TikTok to be depressed, and anything to get someone's attention. You know, I thought... My lands, when you ask, what did you do for Christmas compared to this generation, to that generation, there's no comparison. And so that's why I was going to say, your 10 days over Christmas can really make a difference. And so what you would think on the winter of 1776 when this happened, that 
you would think it would bring hope and relief, help and relief. Instead, it brought them more trials, more misery. And I want you to see what took place at this point. So they had this mounting problems that were taking place. And Washington comes up with a very desperate plan. The British were really taking it easy. They were nestled together while the Americans were suffering tremendously. And they were on the verge of extinction as an army. And this is even without battle. They were on the verge of extinction. Can you imagine to be an army and you literally are going to go extinct and it's not even because of a battle. Hear me, I think you'll agree with this. This is exactly what was happening. And there were American soldiers, many who were 15 years of age, whom were 15 years old, who were in captivity in British prisons. And they kept them out on ships. And they were never heard of again. And those were the guys that had been captured in the previous failures. So Many of the patriots had deserted, many were sick, they had jaundice, dysentery, and the reports were the wounded were often laid on piles of straw that was still caked with blood, other people's blood. And I was thinking Washington had to have in his mind kind of like this, like the lepers of old, he made the decision, let's just not sit here till we die. And so the Continental Army went from 20,000 men down to 5,000 men in a matter of a few months. So they were just completely shrink down compared to more than the 34,000 for the British. You know, when you looked at what did the soldiers have to eat, they said sometimes the soldiers were only having one to two meals a week. Many fought shoeless, naked, but for a thin coat. With conditions seemingly hopeless, few civilians wanted to support the army and even less wanted to be in the army. We are going down. The British saw this, and they exploited it. The British offered amnesty. So you not only have the problem of who wants to be you, but the British offered amnesty to anyone who pledged allegiance to the crown. And guess what? Many of these guys started accepting. And this is where we are on the raw history of what was taking place. And you read how historians write it and failures of Washington and the army. You could spend months studying what had taken place and the whys behind it. But the British were under the command of General William Howe, and literally the guy seemed unstoppable. In the weeks that followed, he decided he needed more. So he got in 400 warships and transports that brought in 30,000 soldiers from Canada, England, South Carolina to New York, and he decided with this amount of armory and manpower, I'm going to stop this rebellion. I'm going to be able to put it down. So while Washington feels himself shrink, the other one was growing and decided all we have to do is get bigger and we can put this rebellion down. And so that's what was set up, a string of failures, and, and that's what was going on during this month. So Washington allowed the Continental Forces to defend two forts. Now you could decide why, but both of these forts had been taken over by the British. The commanders were saying we can hold them, and they weren't able to. You know, the American Continental Army lost hundreds of cannons and guns. So not only did they lose their men that were rotting away in prison, but they lost their cannons, their guns, and more than 300 tents 
1,000 barrels of flour, and many blankets and utensils and supplies they needed for the winter. So it just cleaned them out. It cleaned out all their supplies. And so the series of lost battles, the forces were captured in Brooklyn, Manhattan, and the result was they lost New York. New York was lost. That's huge when you have 13 colonies to lose New York. And the flight of the army, along with many New Yorkers, and the Second Continental Congress had to be moved out of Philadelphia, and they had to run for their lives to Baltimore. So the army was driven out of New York, the New Yorkers were driven out of New York, and the British came in and occupied. So this is where it began. Howe then sent troops into New Jersey, and he chased Washington across all of New Jersey. Men deserted, and then worse yet than the desertions, were the patriots who defected to the enemy. So Washington stood on the banks looking at him, of his army, realizing, I'm about to face mass desertion. Well, guess what they did? On December the 11th, 1776, the Continental Congress called a fast. Isn't that a novel idea to do as a country? To think, what can we do with fasting and prayer? You know, you wonder if you could get your freedom with just this. But because of the distressing condition of the unbowed soldiers, the American Continental Congress on December the 11th, 1776, called for a day of fasting and humiliation. And they said, resolved that it be recommended to all the United States as soon as possible to appoint a day of solemn fasting and humiliation to implore of Almighty God that the forgiveness of our many sins prevailing among all ranks and to beg the countenance and assistance of his providence in this prosecution of the present just and necessary war. That's what they wrote. You know, if you'd write that now, it'd almost be criminal. No one would publish it. But that's what they declared. Washington needed a miracle, and Washington was working against a date himself. And the date that was in Washington's mind on Christmas was December the 31st. Now, I want you to notice what took place. You know, looking back in history, you can see, okay, they proclaimed this fast on December the 11th. And notice how quick this occurred after the fasting, that these important events transpired. So number one, on December the 13th, 1776, General Howe, the head of the British, disclosed his decision to suspend all military operations in New Jersey until spring. So basically, he said, I'm going to let you off the hook. We're not going to do any of this. He was returning to Philadelphia with most of his army, and he was making no concerted effort to pursue Washington's army across the Delaware River. You know, he realized that he could do this because if you were from a European nation, they had something they did. During harsh winters, they rarely would fight. So being the sophisticated army that the Brits were, they decided that they would follow the European pattern and they wouldn't fight during the harshness of winter. So he retired to New York City, the home of his beautiful blonde mistress, and released his army until spring. That was the first thing that took place. I wonder how Washington thought as he began to think these reports as they came in. What does that mean to him? Well, number two, on that same date, an American general, Charles Lee, who had delayed advancing troops and had failed to cooperate with Washington, was captured by the British. Now, who 
would think that a powerful American general being captured was the best thing that could happen. But General Lee was caught. Between late August and mid-November, Washington had failed by what the Continental Army General Charles Leach once called a fatal indecision of mind. This was the general that gave Washington the biggest grief. He was the one always telling Washington what he was doing wrong. He was a fierce rival of Washington's, and Lee is historically regarded as incompetent, but not by the British. They highly respected him, and William Howe believed him to be the only rebel general who we have any cause to fear, and they've got him. His capture then was more than a feather in their caps. The British saw his capture as the final triumph, which would end the war forever in their favor. It's funny what fasting will do. The rebellion, quote, had been put down and the American army was broken and now the British had captured the American army's best general in their estimation. But as painful as this was, this actually ridded General George Washington of his biggest critic and helped them find out the treachery of someone who had sold out to the British at the very highest of levels. He was taken prisoner. And what became of that is that General John Sullivan, who had earlier been switched out in a prisoner exchange, took Lee's place. And he promptly marched to join forces with Washington, providing him with a large enough force that Washington wrote, under the smiles of providence, effects such an important stroke. But Washington persisted in his struggle for independence. One day later, he would write the governor, Jonathan Trumbull, and he would write General William Heath, and he'd say, I am considering the possibility of a counter-offensive move. In other words, let's play offense. So the fast put into motion something inside of Washington's spirit to do something about it. When the general called off the game, Washington was left thinking about it, and he made a war council. And in his war council, he brought in his best guys with the best ideas. Quite a few of his officers started saying, let's advocate for caution. Let's save our army. Let's get built up, and in the spring we can do something. But there were others, and they encouraged attack. Washington would make the final decision, but not before they decided Washington was completely mad, like there was something wrong with him. He had come out of a string of failures, and here he was, thinking in terms of a pushing a still sick and exhausted army. They weren't ready for anything else. The British would likely be sending reinforcements from New York to crush whatever resistance they should ever muster up. That's what had caused them to cross over into Pennsylvania to begin with. You know, the things that they were thinking about was how high the stakes were. Because if the British won, if they got a victory in the days following the loss of these other places, this would change the narrative right back to the British being the complete victor in the whole war. So there was something that Washington had to make up his mind. He was going to either win big or lose big. It all regarded on what was going to happen Christmas night. You know, Washington paced the room. He was greatly agitated. The recent events were going through him. And when he did sit, he occupied himself by writing something on a piece of paper. After he wrote something, after the meeting, there was a Continental Congressman still in the room. You might know the name, Benjamin Rush. He picked up the piece of paper that Washington had written on, 
and he found out the general had written one line, one simple phrase, and it said, victory or death. Washington was all in. It was going to be all or nothing. When Rush picked up that piece of paper, that became the code word for that attack and for what they would be doing. It was definitely an Embraer attack that was taking place. Washington's plan of attack was equal parts daring and desperation. It was mixed together, and he would gamble his army in exchange for a victory. Only a victory could save this revolution. So it was the ultimate gamble. Was this the time? Was this the place? Was this the battle that's going to be worth everything gambled upon it? That's what Washington was deciding. He decided, I need to boost the morale of my soldiers. So he turned to his friend Thomas Paine that had initially gotten the the guys all stirred up to be patriots. And he said, help me bolster the morale of my soldiers. And Paine, who had followed the army on campaign and suffered alongside the soldiers, was very popular with the troops. He was kind of the Bob Hope of the... (laughs) No, he wasn't an entertainer. He was one of these men that he could just speak passionate truth to them. So he'd written something called The Crisis. And when The Crisis began circulating at the end of December, it reinvigorated Washington's army. Payne followed his immortal opening with a direct plea to the men. I want to see if you've heard these words. Christmas Day, these are the times that try men's souls. He says, the summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands by it now deserves the love and the thanks of every man and woman. He said, tyranny like hell is not easily conquered. And yet we have this consolation with us that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. It's all or nothing. Washington's army stood firm. You know, things had grown so awful that Washington was considering all sorts of extremes of ideas. In a letter he wrote to his brother, he confessed. He said, I think the game is pretty near up. But Washington wasn't ready to quit. He believed that if he could produce a major victory in the field, that it would reverse the national mood and allow him to recruit his army. So he hatched a plan. He ordered all the boats to a spot. And on the banks of the Delaware River, he issued the orders. Now, the Delaware River crossing prep. Now, these are the orders that were given. This would be a unique place to study the watercraft that he pulled together for this raid. It is not going to be your average boat's that he pulled. He had gotten rid of all the boats so that the British could not cross it. And now he was up trying to regather something for his troops. So Washington was lining up ferries and these boats that had been built to transport iron. There was an ironworks, Durham Ironworks. And he asked them for the boats. And with it, he said, can I have your most experienced waterman? I want to ask you a question. What did they use to make these ferries and these boats move? Okay. All right. So what did they use to make these watercraft move? They turned on the motor. Okay. Yeah, they pulled them. Or there was probably a fixed wire that strung across the river. A lot of times with ferries, they could use the wire to move the boats. So between poling and a fixed wire. Now, that works really well in ice, doesn't it? Can you imagine? Then you've got the problem of how do you hide the preparations of your army when the British are right across the river? 
And how do you hide the boats? Well, General Washington called on a man that had proved himself faithful to him, and that was Henry Knox. Colonel Henry Knox was given command of the river crossing operation for the artillery. So while Washington was putting it together, he told Knox, I want you to be able to get our artillery across. I want you to listen to this. Henry Knox was in charge of the logistics of the crossing, but he had a growing problem. To Knox's woes, the weather was worsening. A northeaster was blowing in, bringing freezing rain, sleet, and snow. And most of the Army's artillery was crossing with Washington, but he was determined that he would not lose one single precious cannon. He was like, I can't afford for us to lose one of them. Remember how he had brought how many? Do you remember? America had a certain number of little cannons, and they were very proud of theirs. Under the overall command of Colonel Henry Knox, the Continentals planned to bring their 18 cannons over the river and through the woods. They were taking everything they had with them. Now listen to this. There were three-pounders, four-pounders, and six-pounders. And they had horses that had to pull the carriages and enough ammunition for the coming battle. Now I'm going to ask you a question. How much does a six-pounder cannon weigh? Okay, the six-pounders defies the name because it's not talking about the cannon. It weighed as much as 1,750 pounds. And they were the most difficult to move. Most of these cannons weigh between 1,000 and 2,000 pounds each. Much more weight when you add the ammunition because you don't want empty cannons. So, you know, kaboom, they're shooting the bowling balls out. So you can imagine how much this weighed. And then you had another little issue you had to move. But thanks to the foresight of General George Washington and all of his prep work, that on these large ferries there was enough room to put the coaches, which had to be large enough to put the horses, which were large enough to put the artillery. Can you imagine how strong these boats had to be to hold that kind of weight? But in the end, all the trouble of moving this artillery train to Trenton proved out its worth. Knox had managed to get 18 cannon across that river, much more artillery than normally a force this side would have used. I want you to think about this. George Washington was 44 years of age at this time. Henry Knox was 25. Knox had a secret hope. He was thinking, it's not that I'm going to lose any cannon. It's I hope to get more cannon. So he went into battle thinking that. You know, guess what? Years after the war... Guess who General George Washington, as President of the United States, made his first Secretary of War? A man who didn't give him excuses. There were plans that were put into place, contingency plans, to guarantee the secrecy. The way they kept it secret is they didn't tell anybody what they were doing. Even their own soldiers didn't know what was going to happen. There was secrecy because there were spies everywhere. Everyone was a spy. And if you weren't a spy, you knew a spy. So they just flat would not tell the army what they were going to have to do. So you have to show up for work not knowing what's going to happen. So we moved from the Delaware River Crossing prep into the Delaware River Crossing action. And I want us to examine something that I've always thought is unique, but we don't have many words for it. And it's George Washington's push. How much push did he have? You know, it was funny to even read that he wrote the word, his push, in a sentence. And you think of Washington, he's a very stable, mature. The emotions of George Washington, why he did so well in battle, is he held his head together. He was very stable, he was very mature. 
But I want you to examine the emotional roller coasters which Washington faced as he's just trying to get the army to the place that they're going to fight. And I'm going to say this. These are the ones we know about. I wonder what other things he faced that we will never know about. But Washington carefully choreographed an attack plan. You know what choreograph means? Yes, that's like a stage performance with all the cues. I mean, he had lined out what was supposed to take place, and everything had to be right on schedule. Would there be any point in this that there would be a deal breaker or something that would cause him to cancel the attack? I want you to ride with me. I want you to go with me through this part that Washington went through. One of the first things that I noticed that happened to him was he kind of got a personal jab. You know, there were a lot of guys that voted against this night. And these weren't low-ranking guys. One guy was General Gates, Horatio Gates. And you know what he did to Washington? As a general, he stayed back. He said, I'm not going to go. So he started faking sickness to avoid having to cross the Delaware that night, which he opposed. That helps the morale of the men when the general's saying, I'm too sick to go. So Washington starts off, and you have these type guys, and they have their excuses. But Washington had a plan, and his plan was that everyone would be across the river by 12 a.m. midnight, and that would give them plenty of time to make the march. That would be they'd do a five-hour march and still land and be there in time to attack before dawn, before there was light. So it would be a night raid. At 3 a.m., they were still struggling to complete their crossing. They were off to a late start. Washington's heart sunk. There was going to be no pre-dawn attack. The next thing that took place, the two units that he had said, okay, I'm going to take this group of men, and there's two more generals carrying men across, were unable to cross the river, leaving Washington attacking with only 2,400 men under his command in the assault. It was 3,000 fewer men than he expected. His force of 5,000-plus has just been unable to get across. As you study history, you start realizing at what point that Washington knew that the other two men didn't make it. And then there was a problem of occasionally a man would fall out of the boat. So without any significant incidents, few of the men, including Delaware's Colonel John Haslett, fell completely out of the boat. He was a 50-year-old Presbyterian minister, of course, and they quickly pulled him back up. I have a theory that when that happens to you, you need to do more spiritual warfare. The next time you'll agree with me. So the push, the original timetable was impossible. With every delay, Washington's fears that his army is going to be caught in the open magnified. He was like, we're just going to be sitting ducks. They're just going to kill another 2,400 of us. What to do, what to do, what to do. Contemplating his choices, Washington was seen brooding on a crate. He was sitting near a fire on the other side of the river just watching as his men were going over. Here he was, the leader, going across first, showing them it could be done while no one else is able to make it. Washington later wrote when remembering this fateful moment, as I was certain there was no making a retreat without being discovered and harassed on repassing the river, I determined to push on at all events. Washington called for a council of war on that side of the river. And he was taking this so seriously. He said, either abandon the attack and recross the river or continue as planned. He had made his decision, but the rest had to be in agreement. Now at 4 a.m., the soldiers began their five-hour march towards Trenton. The army had to march, they say, between 9 to 10 miles. Many of the troops did not have boots. 
so they were forced to wear rags around their feet. Some of the men's feet bled, turning the snow to dark red. Two men froze to death on the march. All the men were half-frozen and soaking wet. So not only were you marching in this cold, your clothes were sticking to you, frozen. Three more men would freeze to death in the boats when they had to return. As they marched, Washington rode up and down the line. He was encouraging the men, keep it up, continue. These men had to be ready to fight when they arrived. So not only did they have to do the all-night crossing, five hours of marching, but when they got there, they had to be prepared to fight. One of the generals sent up this news to Washington with a courier. He told Washington that the weather was wetting his man's gunpowder. And Washington replied, then fight with bayonets. I am resolved to take Trenton. Walking horses, dragging cannons as the snow turned to violent sheets of sleet and hail. Henry Knox, artillery, pushed on. One witness, this is the way he described it. He said this progression of soldiers is the most hellish scene I've ever witnessed. That's how proud they looked. Fasting and humiliation. So the next thing that takes place is they were startled by the sudden appearance of 50 armed men. It took them all back. They were relieved when they were American. They were led by a general, Dr. Adam Stephen. But he had not known about the plan to attack Trenton, so he had been out attacking the Hessian outposts as revenge because they had killed one of his men a few days earlier. To say this was a setback, I want you to see Washington's reaction to this. It was another one of the very occasions when anyone ever saw the normally unruffled, calm Washington completely lose his temper. He fell apart with this guy. Well, the thing that most people don't know here is uh, these two men weren't unknown to each other. Washington and Stevens had some history together. And they had known each other for quite a few decades, and for the most part, they never got along. Hearing this, Washington went ballistic. He thought about this guy. He was like, this is the guy who competed against me in Western land speculation. Here's the guy who we've been in a political election together. Stevens had run against Washington for the House of Burgess, and he lost. So it was one of those nasty affairs. Further back, Washington remembered, Stevens has been my second-in-command during the French and Indian War. While Washington attempted to develop manners and behave like a gentleman and to have strength and courage, Stephen had a different ideal in mind for how he should act. He fell into the stereotype of a backwoods militia officer with hard fighting, hard drinking, and refusal to obey orders. This was Stephen. Ah, they might be considered the odd couple when you put them together as the commander. And Stephen, uh, he was known to be a patron of prostitutes, and he did love his booze. Washington came unglued that this was the man that was going to do him in. He had had one thing after another hit him. And this was the straw that in Washington's mind dissolved his whole plan for the night. Now Stevens, a continental general, had destroyed the element of surprise by allowing this raid. Washington now fully expected to see an alert enemy fully entrenched waiting for their attack. After regaining his composure, and they said that the leaves melted off the trees with what Washington said to this guy. He invited the men, joined the column. And despite his anger at General Stephen, the men only had obeyed orders and they carried out the attack. 
not knowing about the larger scheme of things or campaign. Washington complimented the men, got back on his horse, resumed the advance. Washington had panicked. These 50 men may have stirred up the quiet night and ruined everything. He had been shouting at him, You, sir, you, sir, Stephen, you may have ruined all of my plans by putting them on their guard. Soldiers later recalled having never seen Washington so enraged, which given Washington's reputation, this says a lot. Despite all this, Washington could not turn around now. He would make the attack regardless of the situation. Regardless of the men's condition, regardless of how few he had, regardless of what had gone right for him, regardless of the time, he decided, I will continue on. Concerned about Hessians having a patrol out there, he said, you must maintain profound silence. And he says, if you break ranks with me tonight, I will kill you instantly on the spot. There was no going back. Washington ordered, continue to advance on Trenton. The battle. Much to the garrison's surprise, at 8 a.m., Washington shows up on the scene one mile outside of the town, and he leads the assault personally himself against the garrison. At 9 a.m., they turn the main attack on the town. They were fighting in the streets with artillery raining down on his men. The Hessian commander was a Colonel Rawl. Rawl was determined, I'm going to break the strength of this attack. He had had 36 years of fighting military battles all over the world. He was in disgust of these lowly, sorry patriots that continue to just bite at him. You know, when you see that he was determined to break the strength of the attack, I'm asking a question. After a march like that, who had the strength to fight? Against an army that had been in a garrison, warm, taken care of, clothed, <laughs> Eating, these Americans went up against them. However, something was taking place. It may be the round that you can't see, but Rawls' plan quickly unraveled as American artillery and musketry hammered his men. The Hessian artillery was quickly silenced. Americans went up, and they started taking their guns away from them. Even if Rawls had options to escape, his instincts was not a man to retreat. He wanted to charge the American lines and scatter the enemy. Like many professional officers, he believed the undisciplined Americans would flee if he could just show enough of a daring counterattack. All he knew he had to do was to charge into them, and they would flee, just like he had watched them do in New York and New Jersey. He said, I know they'll do it here. It had confirmed his views of what kind of fighting men these were. However, Colonel Rawl was able, even though that they were surrendering, even though the guns were taken away, he decided to put this into effect, and he was able to rally two of his regiments who were still in the fields. And he ordered his men, continue to attack. Attack the American left flank. He's yelling at them, forward, advance, advance. He has the bands playing in order to bolster his men. You wonder what tune were they playing? And they're out there, and they're singing, and they're playing. And as the bands are playing, Colonel Raw was struck in the side by a musket ball, and he falls from his horse. He has been mortally wounded. General Washington and the famous General Nathaniel Green stop the battle and come to visit the dying Colonel Johann Raw at the Methodist Church. Raw 
lays there as he's dying. But before he dies, he formally surrenders to Washington. It had been a one-hour battle. The loot. There's nothing like a battle without the loot. The Continentals had collected prisoners and secured the town. The dead were looted. They picked their pockets of anything of value, took whatever they needed. They captured the clothing, the equipment, the cannons, all added to the American victory. The Hessians had been told to expect to be killed if they were captured. After they were looted, they expected to be knifed. The frightened prisoners were so relieved to be being treated reasonably well. There was one thing that was a prize among the Americans. It was the Hessian brass helmets. They were the most valued prize by the victors as the men would grab these helmets to take back. You know, when a man leads with courage, a lot of times men will have courage after him. So I noticed that the men, they actually took after Washington's push. I want you to hear what they did. As one example, during the battle, a gun carriage was broken, meaning they had no wheels to transport the 2,000-pound cannon weapon. 2,000 pounds. General Knox had ordered the gun spiked and abandoned as part of the retreat. I'm sure in his head he was going 18 minus 1. However, one sergeant, he refused to do as he had been ordered. He got four other soldiers that were just like him, and he told them, drag the cannon with me. 500 pounds per man. Dead weight across the ground for miles back to the river. Dragging the weapon was so slow going that even the rear guard passed up this team. General Knox looked at him again and told him, abandon the gun and get to the river. Abandon it, not to obey orders. At one point, the team thought that the next people that came up against him was a party of British light horse were approaching him. And they never had been so relieved that it was a bunch of Quakers. They eventually got the gun to the river and into the boat. General Knox rode up and asked them where that gun had come from. When told it was one he had ordered abandoned at Trenton, he praised the men for their efforts. If you're going to defy orders, you just better be right. Henry Knox wrote of the victory at Trenton, Providence seemed to have smiled on every part of this enterprise. That's how they looked at it. They looked at it as Providence smiling on them. But you know, they had to recross the crossing, if you think about it. Were the taxis still waiting? They had to go back to the boats. It's at this point that Washington quickly learned, however, that Ewing and called forces had not made the crossing. They were the ones that were supposed to keep the Hessians from retreating. Fearing that his position was too exposed, Washington decided to recross the Delaware with prisoners and supplies. He would have done a different attack if he had thought he had those men with him routing it off. But you can be very happy to have the spools of a battle, but now you have a double load having to come across the river. And Washington was expecting a British counterattack in force. It is hard for an army to cross a river. It is even harder when you have a double army now with you crossing a river, exhausted fighting men and their captives back to Pennsylvania. And the river was even icier than it had been the night before. Many soldiers and prisoners reported trying to walk across the ice. They said, hey, we're not going to bother with the boats. We're going to walk across the ice, only to have it break, and they fall into the river. They also had to transport the large number of prisoners while keeping them under guard. One American acting as a guard on one of the crossings observed that the Hessians, who were standing in knee-deep ice water, were so cold that their underjaws quivered like an aspen leaf. They would write, Trenton was as cold as hell. I never thought of hell being cold. 
So by noon on the 26th, Washington was safely across the river, and the daring attack had been an overwhelming success. Even as the guys were buoyed by their wind, and this was the most hardcore of the much larger army that had been dwindling down over the prior months. So if you think about it, these guys were the hardcore of those that had been dwindling down. I want you to think for a minute about the prisoner situation. The Continentals overall fought with an aggressiveness and speed that completely had surprised the Hessians, the enemy. Perhaps the one benefit of the many men who had deserted the Continental Army in the weeks prior to the battle was those that were remaining were the hardcore committed guys. Rawls, second in command, had ordered his men to lay down their arms and surrender. But I want you to see what kind of men these were. Many Hessian soldiers, disgusted with the idea of surrendering to the rebels, they took and smashed their muskets on the ground, and they destroyed their equipment. They literally took everything they had and began stripping it and beating it so there'd be nothing left. This denied its use by the enemy and avoided the shame and disgrace of turning over weapons to the enemy. These Germans, these Hessians that were employed as mercenaries by the British were angry, defiant men, trained soldiers that had been paid to fight all over the world. And I want you to understand what was in their heart and how they felt to understand what happened next. Washington gets back and has lunch with the captured Hessian officers. They discussed the battle and what the Hessians had done wrong. It's where we get so much of our information. By all accounts, it was a polite, cordial, and friendly meal between officers. Washington even granted Lieutenant Andreas Wiederholt <laughs> parole to return to Trenton to collect some personal property he had left behind. Oops, I forgot something. I gotta go get it. He tells him. So Wiederholt returns to Trenton, collects his items, and then what do you think he does? He goes back to his outpost. He gets his stuff, and what does he do? Lieutenant Wiederholt, what does he do? Returns the American lines to begin his imprisonment. Such was the level of trust between the officers. What do you think that Washington did with his prisoners? What could he possibly do? Who's going to spend time when you have an army that small defending these guys? You know, prison guards sitting on the top of the payroll of the Continental Army. Well, he treated them well. And he wanted the guys to be taught an idea he wanted them to understand what it meant to truly be free. He decided he was going to teach them about liberty. Oh, that we would do that with our immigrants today. If people could assimilate with our values and ideas, you see a perfect picture here of what Washington does. He decided, I'm going to take these enlisted men and I'm going to have them taught about the idea of liberty. So if return, if they possibly come back to this country... These ideals will begin to spread through all the Hessians. So, eventually, the prisoners would be transported to the western parts of Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Virginia. And there he put them living on parole with German-speaking colonists. Who taught them the ways of liberty and freedom? Most were allowed to live and work in the communities with restrictions on how far they could travel and nightly curfews. But I've read the numbers of how many escaped went west and are American families today. Many of the soldiers enjoyed their new conditions so much that they opted to be Americans after the war. The miracles continued. The two other commanders failed to cross the Delaware. If that doesn't show us alone, 
the miracle that Washington could get across that Delaware River when two other generals with their armies behind them never could find a way across. You know, I want us to think, can you believe that one man could alter the course of history? As I begin studying this and what you're going to hear in the next time we gather on this, it's amazing that upon one man that he can change the history of the world. If God had not been with him, Washington would have lost his army. He would have lost his supplies, his artillery. He had lost the entire war effort. America's goal, that thing within every American, that love of liberty, that hope, that dream would have forever been the laughing stock of the world because we would have started something we failed. So these next things that happen, you see God weaving things for good, and some of them were good. But again, you see God getting involved in this night because there was a weather miracle again. The weather cooperated to an astonishing degree with the Continentals all through this war. It scared the Brits how much that the weather went with the Continentals' needs. Another part required that they had to move through a swamp. The only thing that could get them through the swamp was that it had frozen sufficiently enough to make the passage possible. There had been difficulties for Washington, but now these difficulties were turning and working for his favor. The terrible winter storm that hit Christmas night made the march so difficult, which soaked his soldiers and dampened their gunpowder. It convinced the Hessians that no one would be crazy enough or stupid enough to get out on a night like this in the storm. For the first time in nearly one week's time, the Hessians had stayed indoors and they had pulled their patrols in. They canceled the full daily pre-dawn patrol because there was no way anyone would be able to pass through such a storm as this. The other miracle was how easily that Lee was captured. To have an American general captured, it's a good thing. Oh, it was the most blessed of days. For it returned 2,000 troops to Washington into the hands of Colonel Sullivan. And Colonel Sullivan has now taken the men and gone and done something great that Washington doesn't know yet. Miraculously, it was like Washington could now go on the offense because Lee was shut down. Washington was being prevented from going offensively because of this one general. This was turning things around. The third miracle was Royal, a very savvy general, couldn't decipher the intelligence he was receiving. He can't decipher the intelligence he receives. Earlier, Royal asked for troops. He had sent, and he had asked that the British General James Grant in Brunswick, he said, would you give me more troops? And guess what Grant told him? Rawl, you're overreacting. He wrote him back, tell the colonel he's safe. Those words came back, bought him. It gave him false assurances. I'm telling you, Grant and the other Hessian general that had another fort were running for their lives at this moment. They said, forget going to Brunswick. We're going to run all the way to New York. So after the General Grant tells him, you're overreacting, tell the guy he's saved and gives him this false assurance, then suddenly Rawl receives a note from General James Grant telling him, I changed my mind. I've heard Washington's about to attack you. So Rawl just getting this conflicting intelligence back and forth. Then he has, of course, the unopened note from the Tory former who had gone out in the weather to make sure that he could tell the guy, they're coming, they're coming, the Americans are coming to attack. 
but Rawl hadn't opened the note. He had put it back into his pocket. The men had slept in their uniforms with their guns by their side, but to no avail. Because number four, the American diversionary attack on Rawl had totally thrown him off. He thought the predicted attack had taken place. Rawl thinks that all these people have been trying to warn him about this group of 50 men that had attacked. So Washington had a meltdown over what he had gone crazy over is actually what saved the surprise of the attack. Is that not God putting a gun on our problems and forcing even what worked against us to work for our good? I bet Washington ate a few leaves of those trees he blistered. So that Christmas night attacked by Stephen's small raiding party, these 50 Virginians who struck the outpost northwest of the town, wounded perhaps half a dozen Hessians before riding off into the night. Rather than putting the Hessians on high alert, Rawls simply assumed this was a small raid, was the big attack about which he had been receiving warnings. His men mostly remained indoors, seeking shelter from the high wind, snow, sleet, freezing rain that would keep any sane person off the roads. However, Washington at that time had not known that it had the opposite effect and that this was the very attack he had been warned about. What Washington didn't realize is that Stephen had inadvertently done him a big favor. The Hessians had lugged cannons through the storm after Stephen's men, and so they had pulled all their artillery out chasing these 50 guys. And guess what the last miracle is? Knox would get four more cannons from his raiding. Now there are spies and deserters, and then there's this final thing that I'm going to tell you that was what Washington was working against the whole time. And that's the fact that his army had an expiration date on it. All the men had been given papers that their time with the army expired December the 31st. Every waking thought Everything that passed through Washington's mind was he had an army until the 31st. So the expiration date of December the 31st drove Washington to the Delaware crossing. And even when he had won the Delaware crossing, the expiration date was still driving Washington mentally crazy. On December the 30th, Washington decides he must cross the Delaware River yet again. It is his third time to cross that week in an attempt to draw the British into an engagement, but this time on the grounds of his choosing. The move placed his army in enemy territory. It was a risk to try to resolve the enlistment crisis. In one day, they are either going to be gone or they're going to go home. What Washington did at this moment is like a man playing checkers. He can't afford to lose any battles. He's playing with everything in him, trying to stay alive. After crossing, he had made an appeal to extend their enlistments, and he said, I'll pay you a bounty. Addressing one regiment, Washington asked, he said, who would be willing to volunteer to poise their firelocks? He said, if you're willing to volunteer with me, just click your firelocks and show me that you're with me. To Washington's embarrassment and dismay, not one man clicked his firelock. None were going to stay with him. He therefore made a personal appeal to them. He pledged his own credit against the bonus. He begged them. He said, I'm offering you just stay with me six more weeks. As he put his whole fortune on this moment of saying, I'll pay if you don't get your bonus, if you don't get what's promised to you, 
I put everything I have that I'll go into debt to pay these debts to you. But you know what was going on in Washington's mind? It was the thing he had written to his brother. He told his brother, I'm considering one thing. I'm about to put Mount Vernon for sale in order to keep my army. So in the back of his mind, as he risked his credit, and as he considers his beloved Mount Vernon, he starts throwing everything he has at these ragged men and begging them, please stay. Give me six weeks. But it was not the money that motivated the troops to stay. The troops gathered in General Washington. He spoke as well as he could. He said, would any volunteer step forward? An awkward moment, terrible moment followed. Not a single man stepped out. The general simply tried again. He repeated his same arguments over and over to him. You know the guys were thinking about their wives, how their farms were, the letters back home. They had waited for this day. Frustrated, Washington wheeled his horse around and he exclaimed, My brave fellows, you have done all I have asked you to do and more than can be reasonably expected. But your country is at stake, your wives, your houses, and all that you hold dear. You have worn yourselves out with fatigue and hardships, but we know not how to spare you. If you will consent to stay only one month longer, you will render that service to the cause of liberty and to your country, which you probably never can do under any other circumstances. Something in the second appeal struck the hearts of these cold, battle-sick men. A few came forward, a few more, and then almost all. Approximately 3,300 men chose to step forward for the additional $10 pay. On January the 1st, 1777, the new year brought more good news. Money from Congress arrived, and his army was paid, and the debt that Washington had pledged to was cleared. And Washington received a series of resolves from the Congress. The Congress realized this man was doing something for this country that no other man could do or was willing to do. So Washington received a series of resolve from Congress including one that gave Washington's powers similar to that of a military dictator.